be on the cusp of the next great era of wet AMD therapy. Which phase three data will guide physician decision-making if new technologies are approved by regulatory bodies? He's Greg Notstein, I'm Scott Criswanis, and this is New Retina Radio's ASRS coverage from Retina Today and Brynmar Communications. Dr. Shirag Javeri spoke with us about anatomic data collected in the phase three archway study. How did patients who received the port delivery system differ from those on monthly ranibizumab in terms of fluctuation in central subfield thickness? And as FDA weighs the possible approval of ferisumab for the treatment of wet AMD, we hear from Dr. Carl Chalky about the safety, efficacy, and durability of ferisumab in the Tanaya and Lucerne studies. Those interviews coming up during this episode of New Retina Radio's ASRS 2021 coverage. The literature tells us that fluctuations in retinal thickness among wet AMD patients might be linked with reduced visual outcomes compared to patients who have had stable retinas. Did patients who were treated with the port delivery system with ranibizumab experience fluctuations in retinal thickness? And if they did, was there any link to visual outcomes? To answer this question, we turn to Dr. Chirag Javeri, who explored this topic in a presentation at this year's ASRS meeting. Dr. Javeri practices with Retina Consultants of Austin and the Austin Research Center for Retina. Dr. Javeri, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Greg and Scott. Before we get into the PDS data itself, what can you tell me about the link between retinal thickness fluctuations and visual performance? So recent data from Usha Chakravarti has showed us that fluctuations in anatomy can lead to worse visual outcomes. Post-hoc analysis from CAT, Ivan, Harbor, and the Hawk Harrier studies have showed us something similar. So we wanted to know if patients in the phase three archway study who showed anatomic fluctuations and if that also affected their visual outcomes. And why don't you give us that top line refresher on archway? So the archway study is a phase three study uh, looking at the port delivery system or the PDS system. And it's comparing um, patients who um, were given the PDS implant that um, allows a high concentration of ranibizumab uh, to be delivered into the vitreal cavity, comparing that to monthly ranibizumab in patients who had wet macular degeneration. We found that the PDS system was equivalent to monthly ranibizumab with patients with wet AMD. The company has submitted this data in its filing with the FDA, and a decision is expected soon. How did you determine whether a patient experienced fluctuating retinal thickness? So what we did is that we assigned patients a fluctuation score. So this score was calculated over 10 monthly visits, and we measured the magnitude of change in their central subfield thickness, or CST. A change of less than 50 microns was considered negligible and was not included. So only patients who had 50 microns or more of change um, was that score, that amount added to their cumulative fluctuation score. And a fluctuation score is your research team's own metric. Yes, this is a novel method, and so it should be interpreted that way. Understood. So tell us what you and your research team found. So fortunately, only about one in five eyes in both arms, the PDS and monthly randomizumab arm in the archway study experienced any fluctuations. Patients in the PDS arm who, who fluctuated had a mean change at week 40 compared to baseline of approximately 59 microns. 
And those in the monthly ranibizumab arm demonstrated approximately 19 microns in, in change from baseline. Patients in the ranibizumab arm had an average of 2.3 times or episodes of fluctuations during the trial. And the number of fluctuations in the PDS arm was an average of 1.8 fluctuations. What did all of this mean for fluctuation scores? So the mean scores in the PDS arm was 181, and in the monthly ranibizumab arm was 233. So the PDS arm had a total of less fluctuation compared to the monthly ranibizumab arm. And how was that linked to visual outcomes, if at all? So patients who had no CSC fluctuations gained one letter in both the PDS and ranibizumab arms. However, patients who did have fluctuations lost 1.6 letters in the PDS arm and lost one letter in the monthly ranibizumab arm. That's a difference of about two letters in all. Is that clinically relevant? Yes, I absolutely think so. So we have to remember that this was at 10 months. Um, we know that AMD is a chronic disease. So what we're looking forward to is uh, longer term data uh, out of the archway patients, because we uh, feel that it's possible that that difference between patients who had fluctuations versus did not have fluctuations could also continue to grow. There is so much data in the archway study. Tell our listeners what they need to take home from this talk. So in general, in the archway study, 80% of patients, regardless of the arms that they were in, did not experience clinically relevant fluctuations in CST, which was defined as more than 50 microns. Patients who fluctuated had similar visual outcomes in both groups, and which was less than patients who did not fluctuate. This echoes previous findings of fluctuations in fluid leading to worse visual outcomes. Thanks for talking to us today, Dr. Javeri. Thank you very much for having me. A biologics license application was submitted to the U.S. FDA in June for the treatment of wet AMD and DME. The drug, Farisimab, and if it's approved, it would be the only bispecific antibody available for use in an ocular indication. The filing for wet AMD relied on data from the Tanaya and Lucerne studies, a pair of phase 3 clinical trials. We wanted to hear about the efficacy, safety, and durability of farisimab in Tanaya and Lucerne, so we invited Dr. Carl Chalky to return to New Retina Radio, where he will share details about his ASRS talk this year. Dr. Chalky practices at the Retina Foundation of the Southwest, which is in Dallas. Dr. Chalky, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Greg, and thanks, uh, Scott, as well, for inviting me back. Give us a quick summary of farisimab before we get started. So farisimab is a very interesting molecule, and that is the, it's a bispecific molecule, which means that it has two portions of the molecule, which bind both VEGF-A and ANG2. And it really is born out of this idea that we know from our experience with anti-VEGFs that we are not really disease modifying. We have to continue to treat almost indefinitely these patients. And so the idea is that there are additional pathologic factors that are involved in, in the disease. ANG2 has been shown in many animal models as well as in, in clinical data, is involved in an abnormal angiogenesis, which is the hallmark of neovascular AMD. And so as such, 
the idea of binding and inhibiting both VEGF A and ANG2 was a very attractive one scientifically. And how were Tenaya and Lucerne structured? So the patients were random, randomized one-to-one. The, in every trial, there is always a comparator. And in this case, it was a flipper that was given on label every eight weeks after three monthly loading doses. However, in the frisimab arm, this was a very innovative design in which there was four monthly loading doses of the drug given, but then at weeks 20 and 24, disease activity was assessed. And depending on whether there was or was not disease activity, the interval was prolonged, which meant that patients had the opportunity to go beyond eight weeks to 12 weeks, and then to go beyond 12 weeks to an every 16 week dosing schedule. So this was a very innovative way. It was also interesting in that it took the fact that there was an opportunity to predict at this early time point, the uh, disease activity interval. And that's what was done in this trial. And then the primary endpoint was primarily a change in best corrective visual acuity from baseline over weeks 40, 44, and 48. And of course, this is a ongoing two-year study, the results of which are still um, being assessed. But the good news was that from a baseline characteristics between all of the arms in both studies, they were well-balanced. Let's back up to the ferisimab arms for a second. Why were all the patients in the ferisimab arms considered to be in a single arm for the purposes of this study, rather than in three separate arms reflecting three separate regimens? Well, the idea was no one knew for sure how many patients would end up in each one of these dosing interval arms, for so example. So because of that, from a statistical and from a planning purposes, the idea was that all patients would be receiving frisimab, and then the dosing interval was going to be dependent on the patient's own unique requirement for drug. So in some ways, it was personalized, but the overall outcomes could be then compared uh, in one group uh, with eight-week dosing of a flipperset. What did the researchers find at the primary endpoint? So... In Tanaya, the frisimab therapy resulted in a gain of 5.8 letters from baseline, while in that study, a flipperset gained about 5.1 letters. In Lucerne, very similar, frisimab and a flipperset both resulted in a mean gain of about 6.6 letters. In short, despite these differences in dosing intervals, Frisimab therapy was not inferior to a flipperset for visual function measures. In addition, using OCT, there was comparable similarities in central subfield thicknesses and the percentage of patients who avoided major vision loss. Let's go back to those ferisimab treatment arms. Uh, did anything break down as far as dosing schedule? Yes. So as we said, this was a very innovative trial design in which at these early time points at 20 and 24 weeks, patients were categorized into a dosing interval. And at the end of the trial, at least in the first year, about 45% of patients were able to go to 16-week dosing interval. 
about 33% went to Q12 week dosing and about one fifth or 20% stayed on a Q8 week dosing schedule. What that means is that 80% of patients could remain on a Q12 week or higher or longer dosing interval than just eight week. So in this sense, the medium number of frisimab injections was six compared to the aflipercept arms, which was arm, which was in a Q8 week dosing schedule and required a total of eight injections. Safety is paramount, especially when it comes to approval from FDA. Were there any safety concerns that were raised in the study? Fortunately, there really wasn't. So the incidence of intraocular inflammation, uh, which we know can occur with any drug we inject, uh, was found to be very similar between both the frisimab arms and the aflipercep arm. So for example, with aflipercep, 1.2% of patients had some intraocular inflammation event, while about 2% in the frisimab arms. No difference statistically, but most importantly, as we've seen with other new drugs, there was no cases of vasculitis, occlusive vasculitis, or retinitis uh, in these neovascular AMD studies. All good information to know. Dr. Chalky, what's next for frisimab? Well, as you mentioned in the opening, uh, the FDA filing has been made uh, seeking approval for patients with wet AMD. Of course, this study is ongoing, and I really think the two-year data is going to be critical in our assessments of FRISMAB to improve the ability to uh, increase the treatment intervals in patients. And of course, the study will go on beyond two years to a f- four-year study as well, uh, Avenil X study. So lots of additional data to come. Well, we look forward to hearing more. Dr. Chalky, we will have to have you back on to give us more. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Retina Radio. My pleasure. Be well. That's it for this episode of New Retina Radio. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and spread the word about this podcast. We've got two more episodes of ASRS 2021 coverage. Be sure to stick to your podcast feed to hear the updates. 